0: Say it plain, that many have died for this day. Sing the names of the dead who brought us here, who laid the train tracks, raised the bridges, picked the cotton and the lettuce, built brick by brick the glittering edifices they would then keep clean and work inside of. Praise song for struggle. Praise song for the day. Praise song for every hand-lettered sign, the figuring it out at kitchen tables. Some live by love thy neighbor as thyself. Others by first do no harm or take no more than you need. What if the mightiest word is love.
1: You just heard poet Elizabeth Alexander on January 20th, 2009, reading her poem, Praise Song for the Day, during the first inauguration of President Barack Obama. Alexander, a Black woman, speaking at the inauguration of the first Black president, urged us to sing the names of those who built, brick by brick, the glittering edifices they would keep clean and work inside of. On Wednesday, an angry, violent, destructive mob of mostly white Trump supporters broke into one of those glittery edifices, smashing windows, destroying property, violating the private offices and the public spaces. And they did so in broad daylight with faces fully visible, taking selfies, and posing for photographers.
2: It is time for a system check of the foundation of our politics. On this episode, we talk with Dr. Hassan Jeffries, Associate Professor of History at The Ohio State University. And we get a final word from Professor Blair Kelly, Associate Professor of History at North Carolina State University.
1: I'm Melissa Harris-Perry.
2: I'm Dorian Warren.
1: And this is System Check.
2: This week, voters in the state of Georgia made history when they chose two Democrats to represent them in the United States Senate. John Ossoff, a Jewish 33-year-old son of immigrants, and Reverend Raphael Warnock, a Morehouse graduate who serves as senior pastor of the storied Ebenezer Baptist Church, a church once pastored by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Warnock is the first black senator ever elected in the state of Georgia.
1: And the story Reverend Warnock told as he humbly accepted his historic victory resonated with the poetry Elizabeth Alexander composed for the inauguration of President Obama in 2009.
3: And my mother, who as a teenager growing up in Waycross, Cross, Georgia, used to pick somebody else's cotton. But the other day, because this is America, the 82-year-old hands that used to pick somebody else's cotton went to the polls and picked her youngest son to
0: be a United States senator.
1: Warnock, like Alexander, is calling us to remember the hands that built America, Black Southern hands unpaid for their labor, unrecognized for their artistry, unthanked for their contribution. And this is what I thought of on Wednesday as I watched violent white mobs storm the Capitol shouting, this is our house. Uh, Who exactly do they mean by our? Construction of the US Capitol began in 1793. Enslaved black people, rented out to the profit of their enslavers but never paid for their own labor, built that capital at every stage from design to construction.
2: Melissa, this rhetoric is fueled by the same racism and erasure that we heard during the white nationalist riots in Charlottesville in 2017.
0: You You will not replace us! 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 You will not replace
3: us! You will
2: not replace us! Replace who, exactly? Enslaved Black people built the University of Virginia, and the land where they raised that iconic campus belonged to the Monacan nation for hundreds of years before white folks arrived from Europe. It's actually Black and Indigenous people who have the right to tell those torch-bearing racists, we will not be replaced.
1: And even though most observers are finally forcefully and accurately identifying how the recent lies and misinformation campaigns of President Trump and of his Republican allies fueled Wednesday's riot at the Capitol, far fewer national figures or media outlets have identified the more foundational lie and centuries old campaigns of mis and disinformation that campaign of white supremacy, which erases the genius, the labor, and the contributions of black people and ignores the reality that it is those people who built the foundation on which our entire political system is built.
3: But as I'm actually sliding my hand along the cellar wall, I couldn't help but think about my daughters, and my youngest one in particular, who was only about two or three years old at the time, because every time she hopped out of our car, she would take her hand and slide it along the outside, which is absolutely disgusting. And then, and then if I couldn't get to her in time, she would take her fingers and pop them in the mouth, which would drive me absolutely crazy. So this is what I'm thinking about when I'm supposed to be a historian. <laughs> but then, But then I actually do feel these impressions in the brick. I feel these ridges in the brick. And it takes a second to realize what they are. What they are are tiny handprints, because all of the bricks at James Madison's estate were made by the children that he enslaved. And that's when it hit me that the library in which James Madison conceives and conceptualizes the Bill of Rights, rests on a foundation of bricks made by the children that he
2: enslaved. And this is hard history. This is Hassan Kwame Jeffries, Associate Professor of History at The Ohio State University. And what you just heard is a portion of his TED Talk about confronting hard histories. Professor Jeffries joined System Check on Thursday morning, while we were all still reeling from the shocking scenes we witnessed at the Capitol.
3: I mean, that blew my mind, because mm-hmm. that's the foundation, right? We're, we're so wrapped up in what happened upstairs, and we're not paying attention to what made upstairs possible. And, and you know, to, so the TED Talk is this idea of like hard history. It's like, we got to get down into the basement, because mm-hmm. like, you can't understand what's going on at the foundation, the beginning, of this nation's journey unless you understand or pay attention to what's happening in the basement and to these bricks and to the people who were being forced to make them.
1: Hassan, so many people keep saying this is unprecedented. But that's not right, is it? I mean, what are we hiding in the basement? What is the hard history of racist, violent efforts to overthrow elections in this country?
3: What we saw yesterday, the insurrection, the rioting at the Capitol, political violence, uh, was not an anomaly, it was very American. Look, we gotta begin with the American Revolution, right? I mean, that is political violence, right? Rebelling against the King of England and the Civil War, political violence. But if we look at the more recent history, the last 150 years, uh, you, you you look at the moment after Reconstruction, Reconstruction itself is political violence or how it, is, how it unravels, right? And you know, I, I think specifically uh, 1873 in Colfax, Louisiana, it's a thing called the Colfax Massacre, in which Democrats at the time uh, refused to accept that African-Americans had a right to vote. Now, he, now here are the parallels, right? Like, so what's different? What's unique? Right? When you have, you know, Trump contesting, saying what ballots are legal and what ballots are illegal. And he's focusing on Atlanta and Philadelphia and Milwaukee. Right. I mean, all these black communities he's tapping into something that is very familiar, right? That black people don't have a right to vote. People of color don't have a right to vote. And so, you know, go back 150 years, 1873, you literally have white men armed who are part of a new organization called the Ku Klux Klan, but then other terrorist organizations like the Whites of Chameleon who literally are storming a county courthouse to throw out a duly elected government Uh, that was Republican because they didn't feel that it was legitimate. And so what what we saw yesterday literally was an extension, right? I mean, not just like, oh, this happened before and history is repeating it. No, we never stopped. We've been using political violence to keep African-Americans from voting in various ways for a hundred years after Reconstruction. We saw it in Colfax. We saw it in Wilmington, North Carolina in, in, in 1898. I mean, time and time and time again. And so what we saw yesterday what we saw at the capitol is very much a part of the american political tradition whether or not we choose to acknowledge it now it looks a little different but it's absolutely a part of that tradition and we just saw it manifest not surprising at all i think the only thing that's surprising to me and many other people is that it took this long within this four years but clearly it's been building
2: can I ask a question just to follow up on that? Because it wasn't lost to me that the Confederate flag was inside the Capitol yesterday. And so I want you to help us make meaning of that. But but what you've just described were successful coups of duly elected, democratically elected governments. And, and one way to read yesterday was a failed coup attempt. We can debate if that if that's what it was, but I'm just struck, similar to Melissa. And thinking about the history that you just outlined, Professor Jeffries, of all of these successful in state houses, or, you know, and after, at the rise of Southern Redemption, those were successful coup, political coups. True. And so help us make sense of, given, given the Confederate flag was flown at the Capitol yesterday, right? Was right. walking through the halls of the Capitol. How do we make sense of that?
3: Well, white supremacists also have a very long history of losing. I mean, the Civil War is just one, <laughs> one big-ass loss, right? I mean, so they're okay with losing. Um, and so that isn't, you know, so they lost yesterday, right? At least in the moment, but it's a mix. So, so this is, this is, this is the thing that I think is one of the lessons that we need to take out of the last four years, the fragility of this democracy, right? And so part of what saved the nation after the civil war was the sacrifice of black rights, right? I mean, that's what redemption was. They're like, look, we're not going to have another civil war. We barely got through that. So if y'all, if y'all, if y- if y'all want to get rid of black votes, y'all want to suppress, if y'all want to control black labor, we're okay with that. So the sacrifice of black votes in part, in part allows for sort of this white democracy to play out, right? It's to avoid another civil war. So the success that we saw or that we see in that sort of late 19th century period is really about suppressing black political activism and suppressing black voices. And if there were some white allies that got sacrificed in it, well, then so be it. But it was really about white supremacy. And so when we fast forward, I think, to what we've been seeing the last four years culminating in this attack on the Capitol, I think part of the important connective tissue is this idea of legitimate and illegitimate, right? Mm -hmm. And so what Trump has been doing, certainly after the election, but even building building up to it, was this idea of illegitimacy and spinning that these government officials, this government is illegitimate. And that's always the danger. I mean, this was the danger when Barack Obama was in office and the whole Bertha thing, because you're saying that he's illegitimate. And when you, when you get this a notion of illegitimacy in the minds of people, they then will take it upon themselves to say, hey, if they're illegitimate, then they need to be removed and I can use violence, very American, the American default for political expression to remove them from office. And so that's what we just saw. Right? You've, you've been saying it's illegitimate, you've been saying it's illegitimate, and you've been giving people license to use violence to to do what they think is patriotic, right? You know, the Confederacy, you ask them, well, what was that about? It's like, oh, that was patriotism, the ultimate pa- Really? That's what you got out of that? <laughs> right. And, and so you can see them, you know, waving this flag now, right? You know, the, the Confederate flag never made it into the Capitol during the Civil War, and yet it's walking through the halls there. It's an extension of this of, of white supremacy. We didn't hear enough about that yeah. either yesterday, right? Because that's who it was.
1: Let's dig in right there because the way that you just framed this question of redemption, for me, when I heard Senator Cruz, um, when he actually invoked Hayes Tilden, <laughs> it seems to me that one of the important lessons of Hayes Tilden is exactly as you said, that the parties, jointly made a decision right, to establish what would become this white republic by subjugating for another, what, 85, 90 years, any possibility of Black civic equality. And so I am concerned as we stand in this moment and we hear this as though it is either partisan, it's being covered as though it's either a partisan question or a personality question so it's either about trump supporters or it's about republicans i am much more worried that there will be a kind of unholy alliance around whiteness and around the maintenance of white supremacy that will cross both the new biden administration and the remnants of the trump republican administration that remain in power
3: I think that concern is well founded and I think history would be on your side because we know that reconciliation for white people in America has always meant sacrifices being made for black people in America. Because there's really two types of Trump supporters, right? There are, there are the racist white people who are animated by Trump's racism. Right. And then there's the racist white people who are okay with Trump's racism, right? Mm. And it's like, I mean, just, that's, that's it. Like, you're either okay with it, right? Or you're really animated by it. So those are the two groups. You can decide, you know, what percentage is what percentage. And that got me thinking back to the Obama years, right? And I was like, well, what is it that John McCain and Mitt Romney, and Mitt Romney, who had a wonderful speech yesterday, right? And that reinforced it. I was like, Mitt, you know why you lost? Because you weren't racist
1: enough. Like, that's literally why you lost. It's also why his father lost. I mean, that's actually the the history of his entire family, is that they were insufficiently racist for their party.
3: Exactly. And so that's where the Republican Party is. You get 75 million votes for this guy, right? That says that racism for half of the American electorate is totally cool. And in fact, will bring in more votes than folk who would normally just be on the sidelines if you were not feeding that. That's why we got Georgia for us, you know, for a minute, right? Because Trump is out of it. So if that is the case, that tells us it ain't going nowhere. So what does that leave the rest of the nation, the rest of white America, the 80 million of, or whatever the million is who voted for a Joe Biden to say, okay, how can we bring the country back? Because the races ain't changing. So what are you gonna sacrifice or what are you gonna stand for? And that's where that, that decision and how that is made, that worries me as well, because that's where we know that Black rights have been sacrificed.
2: Can I ask you to connect some dots from like the end of Reconstruction, the 50s and 60s, which you've written lots about, and the effort to undermine the legitimacy of democracy in that period, to bring us to the present. Connect those dots for those three periods for us.
3: Well, I think, I think one, of the, one of the major through lines through that is the absence of truth, right? And the absence of truth in the moment and the absence of truth in how we tell the stories of the past. So in the moment, you have white Democrats in the South who were saying these are illegitimate governments, right? Black folk don't have the right to vote, this, that, and the other, right? And so that serves as the justification for using violence to throw those governments out, right? Political coups. But you fast forward, you know, 30 years, right, to turn of the century, 1910s. And now we have the rise of the lost cause, the spread of the monument, what they're then saying is like, oh, this was about Negro rule and this was about black domination and how everything was so corrupt on the part of black folk. Now, you just made up a myth, right? That, that, and, and, and the absence of truth that then justifies the use of violence and justifies this racial exploitation. So, and, and just keep going, right? So, you hit the 1950s, right? That, that's another period where we see, just after the Brown decision, another period where we see sort of the, the making of the sort of this new narrative, right? About what is, what is civil rights and, and this is communism, right? I mean, it's communism then in the early 2000s, it's terrorism, right? I mean, so it's always this sort of myth making, but to serve a purpose. So, the question then becomes what's the purpose? But the danger is. And, and this, is, this is media, right? I mean, you go down into Mississippi and what the Mississippi papers would cover and wouldn't cover and you know, turning off of uh, you know, programs and shows in the 50s and 60s. I mean, so media has always played a role in that. We're seeing it in a different way in the, sort of the, the, the Fox era and now the social media era. But, but what it says is that lies are powerful political organizing tools. Racism is a lie. White supremacy doesn't exist. Right. Like racism is a lie. We need to understand that. But that's one of the most powerful lies that this nation has been founded on. It hasn't gone anywhere. And so just w- which means this. And this is this is the power of and this is what we're seeing, too, with the power of Trump, because he's mixing two things together. When this politics get together, it becomes dangerous. Right. And that is he, he will lie and, and tell it enough and have other people repeat it. So that it then it exists in this echo chamber. Right. And that people like they are just hearing the, the same thing. Like all of this could have been prevented. Right. If Republicans would have been like, that's not true. It was a free and fair election. Right. But no, no. And, and including, you know, Mitch McConnell and all of them either not saying anything coming out or, or you know, saying, well, we got to look at it. Ted Cruz, as, as you all mentioned. Right. All of that feeds into the lie. So by not saying it is a lie, it is not true. You're feeding into it. But, the, but so you have that combined with what we see now. And, and Melissa, you, you, know, you, you, you understand religion you know, as well as anybody, that religion, and no matter what the religion is, is based on faith. And faith is belief in the absence of fact. That's what we're dealing with in our politics. They are taking on faith in the absence of fact what this guy is saying and what these others are saying. That's dangerous because you can't, you can't argue that. You can't dispute it, because truth, whatever truth that you have, when you present them, they're easily dismissed, right? I mean, that was the case in Reconstruction, that was the case during Jim Crow, and that's the case during right now. So, I don't know how you bring these folk back from the brink, because they're not interested in truth. So, if you just say, Antifa, Antifa, enough, then now, suddenly, they're going to be like, that wasn't us. You were, t- you were in the selfie, what are you talking about? Right, but that's that's the power of the lie and the absence, and that's why just telling the truth, right, just saying, "Oh, if we just present the facts is not enough to change people's behavior. It's not enough to change the politics. That's why you got to combine the politics with the power, right, because they're not just going to change because you said or presented credible evidence,
1: but I must admit, I was surprised by how emotional I got watching the destruction and desecration of the Capitol building. Like even knowing the vile and racist histories of this country, I was angry and really hurt to see the disrespect of this building and of what it represents.
3: It's what Du Bois was talking about, right? This two-ness, right? This duality, how do we deal with this? Nobody, like we're still here as black folk, right? 400 years later, we have a blood investment in this place. And I, I think, I feel what you're saying about the, the uh, you know, the capital, right? Because we have also, particularly black folk, have had this investment in the federal government. We've had this investment in the Constitution that hasn't always worked for us. We've had to make it work. We had to make federal officials, you know, drag them to our side, kicking and screaming. But that is all we have had. Right. And, and so as flawed as the structure is, as flawed as the documents are, for generations, we have only been able to cling to that as not our sort of salvation, but our hope to get these crazy white folk in check. And so to 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 see that kind of fall, I think, says something like you can't defend that. If you can't defend your own stuff, then what does that Say about your ability to defend us, and I think you know to let that happen. And I think part of it too was like if you would have lost the fight, right, and and the po and the police just got outnumbered and overrun, right? It's like okay, right, come back and fight a better fight the next day. But they were opening the door, right, and that I think is is part of the trauma of witnessing it as well. Because I would like to believe that at least at the upper echelons, right, that we're not going to stand for white supremacy. And then you just letting it, just letting it in. Come on in with your Nazi flags. Come on in with your Confederate flags, right? And and I think that, at, at least for me, right, yeah. was yeah. kind of that tension, that hurt, I think, in seeing that because where do you go from there? Where do you go from there?
1: And so then let me make uh, that that big point more personal. So maybe folks have noticed that when we say your name, um, Professor Hassan Jeffries, that it sounds an awful lot like another name that we heard a fair bit uh, yesterday, which is Representative Hakeem Jeffries, who is your brother. I don't know what you are able to and willing to share, but we wanna know that he's okay. We're wondering how you and your family are doing, knowing that he was obviously um, endangered during the riot on Wednesday.
3: Yeah, so he, he is okay. I spoke to him yesterday evening um so which was which was good people were sending me messages you know on social media like hey you know we hope your brother's okay and i was like yeah i haven't heard from him so like let me know and eventually i heard from people on social media like hey we just heard him on tv so he's in a bunker but he's okay and i was like all right thanks a lot i appreciate it right so social media working and helping helping a brother out with his family but it was it was it was scary for sure but it's also i think something that we that we realize now comes with the territory unfortunately that 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 engaging as as a a person of conscience trying to do something positive for the republic right not even Mm -hmm. just for black folk we're gonna take the 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 race part just doing trying to do something positive for the republic now endangers you and i think i think knowing that also speaks to the last point that you had made melissa About why do i feel a particular way about this right about what's happening in part because of how it happened, yeah, right? because you know that if you get if you get turned around, right, you could die, and yet you have tens of thousands walking on this place and and they're just having free reign without any without any consequence. That says a lot about not just the political moment, but that says a lot about this nation and how race is still not just an issue, just a central problem and why we have to continue to fight. Uh, to make this a central issue that needs to be solved.
2: Can I just say walking through the Capitol with a treasonous, seditious Confederate flag, All Right. to be clear.
3: All right. It, it, not only did they lose, it was, but, but you know, Dorian, I have to say, how do we, yeah, they're carrying the flag now, and they, were, and they were waving it, you know, 100 years ago, turning the century. But that's because at the end of the Civil War, you didn't have any prosecutions. You did not hold people accountable for what they just did. Yeah, there was a loss of life of people on the battlefield. But who went to jail? Who lost property? Where was the where were the consequences for leading an insurrection and in a rebellion? There were none.
1: Oh, they lost they lost property, us. Well, yeah, right, You and I. <laughs> us. <laughs> us.
3: But it, but, you know, we we,
2: we really do so much they with
1: lost. <laughs>
3: They said, y'all lost enough, y'all lost enough, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you sacrificed enough, right?
1: That's right. They asked for reparations for losing us.
3: <laughs> Excuse <in> DC, me. <laughs> and in D.C., they got them, right? The only yep. people who got reparations were former enslavers, right, in D.C. And so, but I, I think part of that lesson, right, just, you're right, they, they, they lost us. And they're still mad about that. Some of them are trying <laughs> to get us back. The, the, to Dora, to your point is the danger is not just... Sort of thinking about the moment, thinking about tomorrow. I was
2: going to ask yesterday. you, yeah. And okay. so, what is the path mm-hmm. forward from here?
3: What, the, the path forward is holding people accountable. Yeah. You, ha- there has to be, there has to be justice. You cannot go into the future without there being real consequences for not just what happened yesterday, but for what's been happening in the last four years. All of those who have been enabling, all of those who have been a part of this criminal enterprise emanating from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Because if you do not hold these people accountable, if you do not hold, if if you do not hold up justice, then you are very likely, we are very likely to not only repeat this in some worse way down the road, but then you wind up, Melissa, to your point of what comes after reconstruction, redemption. Mm -hmm. You're saying that, go ahead, you can make the sacrifice. Because if you're not gonna hold them accountable for the racism, for the white supremacy, for the grift, then what's to keep them from doing that or worse going forward?
1: Professor Hassan Jeffries, Associate Professor of History at The Ohio State University, thank you for joining us on System Check today.
3: Thank you so much, Melissa and Dorian. I enjoyed it.
1: If you're a podcast listener, then you know how many podcasts feature ads for other podcasts. It's just the kind of love that we all tend to show to one another.
2: And look, you're going to hear plenty of those here on System Check. But as we start a new year, we are taking a moment to run an ad for ourselves.
1: (laughs) Because listen, Dorian and I, along with our fantastic producer, Sophia, we're working hard every week to bring System Check to you, our growing audience but the only way we can continue to do it is with your support.
2: So if you like what you've been hearing and you want to keep us checking the systems that affect our lives, then take a few moments to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And while you're there, go ahead and rate our show. Leave a review. It might not seem like much, but I promise it makes a big difference. In 2021, we want to keep bringing you all the tools you're going to need to check the systems that shape all of our lives.
2: Now stay with us because the final word is up next.
4: Right, it it might be a wedge, it might be a moment of of shift, it might be a reminder to us Mm. of the difficulty of coalition. It might be a reminder of the work that we have to continue to do. It might be an important reminder for us Black intellectuals Mm. to think about the working class who are the base of this change, right? We, We very rarely think about their power, their determination. This is Blair Kelly, professor
1: of history at North Carolina State University. Professor Kelly joined System Check back in early November. And when we spoke with her, three states were still counting the ballots cast in the 2020 presidential election. The final outcome was very much unclear. And in that moment of insecurity and confusion, Professor Kelly grounded Dorian and me in the stories of her people, Black people living in a new, fragile, and precarious state of freedom. Her words reminded us of the very foundation of our systems and of our resistance. This week, we needed to hear her again. And that is why Professor Blair
4: Kelly has this week's final word. I found my oldest Black ancestor that I could trace on my mother's side back to slavery. Uh, He was born in 1822. He's a blacksmith. He's held in bondage by a man named Joseph Rucker in Elbert County, Georgia, um, a place where my family had been brought by force from Virginia in bondage, Um, probably had been in bondage all the way back to colonial times. Uh, But I find Henry. um, I find him marrying his wife after freedom. I find him working as a blacksmith in slavery, but not in freedom. Mm. But I also find him registering to vote with an X. He doesn't know how to sign his name, Um, but he signs that X on the line and above it, it says his mark. So it's a powerful reminder that I had ancestors who experienced bondage for 40 years and showed up to vote Yep, with the Klan all around with no friends in sight and put his mark down. So who are we to say, oh, we don't have the right kind of candidates. I mean, I, what kind of candidates did Henry have to vote for? <laughs> right. Were they, were they really uh, progressive enough? Were they thinking about this, you know, working class agenda that he would have needed? No. But he knew he needed to make his mark. And so that moment of, of making our mark, I, who am I to not be brave in this moment? Who am I not to be strong in this moment? He is the beginnings of, of generations of people who did amazing things. And so I know that we can be that too. I know when I look at the the class story, when I look at the Black working class, when I look at people who had humble beginnings and humble endings, Hmm. I know uh, that their work is meaningful and rich and that's our lesson.
2: That's it for this week's System Check. Thank you for joining us and be sure to join us again next Friday.
1: System Check is a project of The Nation, hosted by me, Melissa Harris-Perry, and Dorian Warren, and produced by Sophia Steinert-Evoy. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Dee, Dee Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Aaron O'Meara is president of The Nation. And our theme music is by Brooklyn-based artist and producer,
2: Jackery. Support for System Check comes from Omidyar Network, a social change venture that is reimagining how capitalism should work. Learn more about their efforts to recenter our economy around individuals, community, and societal well-being at omidyar.com.
1: The best way to show your love for this show is to subscribe online to the nation's print and digital magazine at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. Join the fight for the once unthinkable progressive ideas that are now mainstream. 80% off for our podcast listeners at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. And as always, if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.